Welcome to the Way Home Podcast, a conversation about church, community, and culture. I'm your host, Dan Darling, here in Nashville, Tennessee. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Thomas Kidd. Dr. Kidd is a historian and professor who teaches history at Baylor University and serves as the Associate Director of Baylor's Institute for the Studies of Religion. Dr. Kidd is my favorite evangelical historian. He's a regular contributor for outlets such as World Magazine, The Gospel Coalition, USA Today. Uh, He's a prolific author. Uh, His latest books include Baptists in America and George Whitfield, America's Spiritual Founding Father. We're going to talk with Dr. Kidd today about George Whitfield. Uh, We're also going to talk about the importance of evangelicals knowing history, knowing their heritage, knowing church history, and why we should study that and why new young scholars should get into the field. Uh, Before we begin our conversation, however, I want to let you know about an exciting new resource from ERLC's Leland Press, edited by my colleague Trillia Newbell, our Director of Community Outreach here at ERLC. This is titled Women on Life. And what Trillia did was she interviewed leading female pro-life voices and gathered their thoughts on what it really means to be pro-life. Quite often, the media will portray the pro-life movement as sort of a war on women. And uh, this book is sort of counter-narrative to say, hey, here's pro-life leaders who are female who are talking uh, winsomely and compassionately and with nuance about this very important and sometimes complex issue of the sanctity of human life. So you can order this book, Women on Life, by going to my website, danieldarling.com, and clicking on the link there. You can get ebook, you get print format, uh, pretty much any, any way that you read books, it is available. You'll want to get your hands on this and read it and perhaps give it to people at your church or small group or um, whatever kind of group that you're part of. But for now, let's join our conversation with Dr. Thomas Kidd. Well, Dr. Thomas Kidd, thank you for joining me today on the Way Home Podcast. Great to have you. Thanks for having me. So I'm I'm reading right now George Whitfield, America's spiritual founding father. But I first want to talk a little bit about the study of history, why Christians should care about the study of history. What would be your response to a question like that? Well, I mean, of course, uh, all Christians would agree that we need to study the history of our faith in terms of what's recorded in in the Bible. Uh, But it's also true that a lot of evangelicals, uh, you know, tend to not care as much about the the history in between Jesus and today. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, I only need the Bible, and and there's certainly a level at which that's true. Um, But I think that wisdom would suggest that uh, we we need to know where we came from as Christians uh, and Americans, too, um, and how much the past has shaped uh, who we are today, how we got to Mm -hmm. where we are today. And and I, I think Christians, you know, have a special... A burden to not just um, focus on biblical history alone, although that should be the top priority, but also to focus on the cloud of witnesses mm-hmm. uh, and and to think about uh, the sacrifices that have been made in the past, uh, some of which ha- can have you know direct impacts on our own spiritual history and and maybe even the history of our uh, salvation. And I, I think it, it makes us uh, grateful. It makes us, in, in the best case, uh, humble. Uh, it, you know, people like George Whitfield can, uh, you know, help us to see just how much can be done in, the, in a lifetime for the sake of the gospel. Um, so I think that it, it really is an important part of our 
uh, diet, reading diet as as Christians to be aware of what's gone gone on in the Christian past. And beyond knowing and studying history, I love reading biographies. I love studying reading history. But I'm you know I'm a I'm not a professional historian. Why should more evangelicals actually? Do the work of history and be be historians. If you're, you know, if you're speaking to future, um, you know, people who are maybe graduate from college and considering graduate school, or maybe considering a career as a historian, uh, why do we need more evangelicals in that field? Well, I think that for the same sorts of reasons, we need uh, Christians who are willing to engage in uh, history, academic history, uh, popular history writing. But from my perspective, I mean, as, as someone who teaches uh, at in a university context and, and got a PhD uh, at Notre Dame, uh, I, I'm also mindful of how much we need a Christian intellectual witness mm. uh, in each generation. And so this obviously doesn't just apply to historians, but it is true that in the past generation, I think uh, perhaps the strongest field in which there has been a powerful uh, Christian intellectual witness has been academic history writing, mm. uh, with people like George Marsden and Mark Knoll, uh, have really set the pace as far as people who are taken seriously in uh, academia, which is often hard for Christians to be taken seriously in academia mm-hmm. these days. But these uh, types of Christian scholars have published with uh, the you know the top academic presses, um, you know secular presses, um, and are able to give I think a lot of secular critics a- at least a little bit of pause to say oh well um, you know maybe not all these Christians are just idiots you know yeah. I mean, which yeah. I think a lot of the secular critics would like to say these days the mm-hmm. new atheists want to say, you know, if you want to be a Christian, then you better check your brain at the mm. door. Uh, and, and I think that we need, you know, you don't, not everybody can be a professional academic, but there's only so many professional historians the world needs. <laughs> uh, but I, I think some leavening influence in terms of that kind of responsible Christian witness in academia mm. is absolutely necessary uh, for, for each generation. And so I'm, I'm passionate about that cause. What I think does give maybe critics of evangelicalism sometimes some fodder for for critique is there's a tendency, a desire sometimes by evangelicals to want to kind of reshape uh, history to, to fit a particular narrative or to make us look better, so to speak. I mean, we've seen that in the last few years with some some kind of whitewashing of people's uh, histories, you know, in terms of American founders or or just hagiographies of uh, of uh, biographies and things like that. Why should we resist that impulse? Well, I think that's right. I mean, you see a tendency in Christian history writing about uh, great leaders in, in the church that don't want to acknowledge problems that I, I think mm-hmm. all mere mortals have. Uh, and then and then a related development is this kind of Christian America history writing, mm. uh, where we, we somehow need the American founders to have all been evangelical believers, uh, even though some of them tell us explicitly they were not, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and, and, and that's a problem in and of itself. But I, I always think, you know, why, why not write that kind of you know, history of these pristine saints. Uh, the reason is, is because the Bible uh, sets the model for us. I mean, that 
uh, everyone except for a certain carpenter's son from Nazareth, <laughs> you know, are, right. are, are pre- presented in the Bible as having failings. I mean, good grief, you know, look at David, uh, Peter, uh, and, you, you know, the list could go on. Often the, the greatest saints also have appalling instances of sin in, in, in their life. Um, and, you know, I think in a way, I mean, it's not that you want to uh, you know, celebrate that in any way, but you, you know, people become, I think, more accessible. And also, it's just it's just true that people have failings, but mm. people also become more accessible if you realize, well, okay, these things, these people did great things for the Lord, even though they had their own uh, struggles with with blind spots and even mm-hmm. sin. Mm. Uh, I, I mean, I think that's the reality of the case. But it's also, to me. Uh, sort of strangely encouraging when you look at somebody like George Whitfield, and uh, there were huge blind spots in some areas, but but yet mm-hmm. God was able to use him. Well, that tells me, well, maybe God can use me too, uh, because, mm. you know, in spite of all my failings and imperfections, maybe God can use me uh, in my little field too. Mm. That's a good segue to uh, talking about uh, George Whitfield, and I'm reading through this biography you wrote, uh, uh, George Whitfield, America's spiritual founding father. And uh, before we kind of dig into him, w- was there something about Whitfield that really attracted you to him that said, you know, I, I really need to do a, a biography of him? What was it that really drew you to, to Whitfield? Well, I've been working on Whitfield uh, on and off, you know, for 10 or 15 years in, in different contexts. I did an earlier book on the history of the Great Awakening of the 18th mm-hmm. century. And Whitfield is uh, undoubtedly the key figure of the Great Awakening. Um, he is the best known, uh, most widely uh, heard and seen preacher of the Great Awakening. Um, and yet he's strangely uh, forgotten today, even among Christians. There are a lot of people who might, for instance, know Jonathan Edwards or they mm-hmm. might know John Wesley, uh, but they don't know Whitfield. And, and so I thought that as his 300th birthday was was approaching, which which came in 2014. I, th- I thought here's an opportunity to reintroduce Whitfield uh, to both a Christian audience and uh, just a history loving audience, and also an academic audience um, to to reassert just how important he was, uh, not just to 18th century Christian history, but to 18th century history in general. Mm-hmm. I mean, in mid. 18th century Britain and America, he is the most famous person, period, of any kind. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it's it's not hard for me to make a case. I mean, sometimes you see these books where you're like, hey, you know, this person really was important too, even though nobody's ever heard of them. Right. Uh, but but with Whitfield, I mean, it's it's easy to see. I mean, maybe more people knew the, the name of the King of England, mm-hmm. but... Uh, People hadn't seen the King of England. People hadn't read anything by the King of England. Uh, it's probably something like 80 or 90 percent of all the American colonists by, say, the mid to late 18th century had had an opportunity to hear Whitfield preach in person. Mm. When you think about that kind of, there, there's no parallel to Mm-mm. today. I mean, we have big celebrities, but but there's no one who has that all kind of encompassing mm. notoriety as Whitfield did in his time. You know, to me, that's just amazing. I mean, without social media, obviously, without broadcast media, with print media, right? You know, the how how popular Whitfield became 
what was it about him that that uh, just drew people? I mean, obviously he had a very charismatic sort of speaking ability and was a good orator. You know, his as you document, you know, in the book, his training for theater might have helped. But what was it about Whitfield that just drew people? Well, as a Christian, I mean, I, I would begin by saying I think he had a, a special anointing on his ministry. Mm-hmm. That, that's, I mean, the kind of results and the kind of attraction that he got, and, and Whitfield would have been the first to say this, mm-hmm. uh, he it has the aura of divine uh, blessing on his work. Um, but I, I think in a, from a more earthly perspective, uh, there's several uh, main factors here. One, one, as you suggested, is that there is a power and charisma to his speaking uh, methods um, and style that is unparalleled in the 18th century. Um, he he uh, is one of the very first evangelists to in that era uh, to speak without notes. Mm-hmm. And so going to hear one of his sermons is is much more of a a captivating event than your typical in-church, often maybe two-hour sermon, mm-hmm. a read from a manuscript. Uh, you know, and some people were pretty good at enlivening that. But, I mean, going to Whitfield's uh, messages uh, is just an entirely different experience for people. Um, another factor is that Whitfield is incredibly hardworking, uh, we, 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 you forget this. I mean, that he is this titanic celebrity, but he's also got to be the hardest working man in the 18th century, at least among pastors. Uh, we estimate that he probably delivered around 18,000 sermons in his career. This is often uh, in, at the high points of his career. He's speaking two or three times a day, seven days a week, uh, and traveling by horseback or by carriage between a different. I mean, he's he, he really is working so hard that I think it helps take him to an early grave. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I really think in some ways he works himself to death, um, often quite ill in between his speaking engagements. Uh, he, he, he crosses the Atlantic 13 times wow. during his career. Any one of those times could have easily led to his death, uh, and, and on a couple of instances nearly did. Um, it was very dangerous traveling transatlantic in those days. And then a, a final reason for his success is that he is, for his time, he is a master of the new media. And at that time, as you said, it's not electronic, as we're used to today. It's not social media. It's uh, newspaper and cheap print. And so when you see Whitfield uh, establishing his network of correspondence and uh, publicity, he uh, is always looking for new opportunities, creativity, and the best media people that he could find. And that explains his longtime relationship with uh, Ben Franklin in Philadelphia, mm-hmm. who, uh, speaking of founders who were not Christians, <laughs> uh, Franklin is it's, well, absolutely clear that he's not a believer, uh, and he tells Whitfield that on, re- on repeated occasions. But Whitfield likes working with Franklin because Franklin is an innovator in new media for his time. And so what's Whitfield interested in? I want to get the word out about the gospel in the best, most innovative ways that Hmm. I can. And so he's willing to work with people like Franklin to make that happen. Hmm. You know, the case that you make, and I think it's really strong, 
is, I mean, essentially, is Whitfield essentially the the a pioneer of the kind of ecumenical trans denominational evangelical movement? I mean, you you read how he's, you know, it was just kind of his impulse to to speak to Anglican churches. Presbyterian church, to speak to dissenting churches, to speak in state churches, even Baptist churches. Was he kind of a pioneer of the transatlantic sort of evangelical movement? I would say that he is the pioneer. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and of course, it's not as if that there aren't precedents in the Reformation and this, mm-hmm. this kind of thing. But Whitfield represents such a dramatic break um, because people had never seen anything as sensational as his his ministry. And one of the keys to it is his laser focus on the proclamation of the need for the new birth, of uh, being mm. born again. Uh, and that focus on, I mean, he has an itinerant uh, evangelistic ministry. So he's not working with a local church. He's not working with uh, local congregational issues. He's traveling around and working with whoever will host him, whoever will help him, uh, to get the word out about, you know, the point is not you need to go to church, it's not that you need to be religious, I don't care that your parents were Christians, what I want to know is, are you born again? Mm. And in and, and that way, he's a pioneer of the kind of ministry that Billy Graham had, for instance. Mm. Um and so because of that focus on the necessity of the new birth, as Whitfield would call it, he very explicitly says that he sees born-again people, not just among Church of England folks, but also among Baptists, Presbyterians, Congregationalists, and other kinds of denominations. And and so he sees himself connected with the community of the born-again in Britain and America and on the continent. Mm-hmm. Um, and he downplays uh, denominationalism. Now, it's not as if he doesn't care about theology, uh, and, and I think that this is a, a stereotype of Whitfield that I'm trying to correct in my biography. He cares very much about theology, and he's a very principled Calvinist, mm. uh, and he's he's willing to, to part ways with people over the differences between free will and Calvinism and so forth, and has a bitter falling out with John Wesley, for instance, on that mm-hmm. on that issue. So it's not as if he's he's a precedent to uh you know the kind of celebrity pastors that you see today who uh are you know don't give a rip about theology mm-hmm. uh you know or who are theologically illiterate. Uh that's that's not Whitfield at all, but but he is eager to make common cause with people uh who he thinks he agrees on with those kind of evangelical essentials. Mm. The follow-up question is fascinating to me, you know, because he he sort of pioneered the the evangelical sort of transdenominational movement, found such a home in America. I mean, he would remark over and over again that America was much friendlier to him. Uh, he sort of even had sort of publications that went transdenominationally. What kind of impact did Whitfield have on the future of America? Obviously, he, he passed away before America got its independence and became a, a nation, but did he kind of till the ground, so to speak, for what would come later, do you think? I think he does in some ways. I mean, I think the Great Awakening and then and then Whitfield specifically are an important background piece of the American Revolution. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, you know, the Great Awakening's height is happening 30 years before the American Revolution. It's, it's the greatest 
social and cultural upheaval in the history of colonial America prior to the revolution, uh, not just on a religious basis, but socially, culturally. Um, and, I mean, it, it's destabilizing to the, the state churches, the established churches of the time. It's, it's, a, it's a great uprising against traditional authority uh, in, in all kinds of different ways. I mean, there are instances during the Great Awakening where they're having to call out the militia on, you know, rioting evangelicals in the cities, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, this this starts looking kind of familiar, right? I mean, mm-hmm. and so so this is happening three decades before. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a unifying experience, unlike anything that Amer- American colonists had ever seen. Uh, and so this has to have some kind of conditioning effect. Mm-hmm. Um, and and Whitfield shows he dies in 1770, and so as you said, he's he's not there for the Declaration of Independence and so forth. Mm-hmm. But he shows early signs of being sympathetic to the Patriot movement. He's longtime friends with Ben Franklin. Uh, he's there in 1766 when Ben Franklin courageously testifies against the Stamp Act uh, before Parliament in London. Whitfield is there in the crowd. I mean, that goes mm-hmm. noticed, right, mm-hmm. uh, that, that Whitfield is there showing his support. But I, I also think, and I've made this point in, uh, in my Great Awakening book and also the Whitfield book, that, you know, you don't want to overstate this. I mean, Whitfield is as much of a celebrity in Britain and has a lot of those same kind of effects in Britain as he does in America, obviously, uh, the political history of Britain goes a very different way. So, you know, I'm not one that that I'm I'm cautious about trying to overstate, you know, this idea that somehow the Great Awakening causes the revolution, mm-hmm. or somehow Whitfield is the figurehead that leads to the revolution. I mean, there seems to me there's something there about like taxes and stuff, <laughs> yeah. you know, that, right. that's pretty important too. But the, as far as a conditioning influence, I think it's very important. Well, and in one respect. I mean, as I'm reading your book and I'm seeing his emphasis on what would become evangelical distinctives like the new birth, the personal salvation through Christ, um, reliance and dependence on Scripture as as the role for faith and practice and doctrine. Did this kind of sow the seed for this idea of religious liberty? I mean, Whitfield didn't particularly articulate religious liberty, but his willingness to sort of preach in any pulpit and not countenance some of the sort of, you know, anti-religious liberty uh, movements of some of the early uh, colonial churches. I mean, do you think he had a role in that? Yeah, I mean, a lot of Church of England ministers and leaders were uh, just utterly Mm -hmm. hostile to Mm -hmm. what would be called the dissenters, uh, which includes Baptists. Um, and uh, Whitfield got in trouble with a lot of Church of England uh, pastors and officials because of his cooperation with the dissenters. Um, and and when he was pushed, for instance, by the Anglican Commissary of Boston about, mm. what are you doing running around with all these Presbyterians and Baptists and stuff? And that's when he says, one of the famous moments, he says, I see born-again people among mm. all denominations, and those mm. are my brothers and sisters. So I, I think in that very respectful, transdenominational, but also principled cooperation with lots of different kinds of Christians, you, you start to see uh, a kind of decline of this particular Anglican Church of England, uh, you know, which was the established church in uh, in England. It was the established church in a lot of the colonies. But if, if the idea is that a vital personal saving relationship with Christ is is the mm-hmm. center of of faith. Then those kind of denominational 
prejudices, I think, start mm-hmm. fading away. Uh, but but I, I also want to say that, you know, Whitfield remained a Church of England uh, a minister for his whole life and, and uh, derived benefits from that. Uh, but he was very generous, at least towards uh, the dominations of other Protestants. In many ways, can you can you draw a straight line? You know, if you think of the American evangelists, you, you got Whitfield, and then you've got your your sort of Billy Sunday era, uh, and then uh, you've got like D.L. Moody era, and then you've sort of Billy Graham, and I may be missing one in there. But is there kind of a straight line you can draw between those? I think so. I mean, I I I would say that. Uh, the comparison between Graham and Whitfield is is the most obvious one, uh, simply because I don't think um, it, as big of a deal as all those other people were. You might add, you know, Charles Finney, um, people like. I mean, the, the scope and the scale of Whitfield and Graham's reach. Now, Graham, of course, was able to go global, um, but that is mostly because of improved communication and transportation technology. I mean, Whitfield would have done the same thing if he had had, uh, you know, airplanes and so forth. So, so I mean, I, but I would say that really for his time, uh, that, that Whitfield's fame and notoriety and the sensation of Whitfield's ministry is bigger than Billy Graham's. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, because Graham is, is, of course, the most well-known and respected religious figure in America uh, for his his career, but he's just one of, you know, kind of many well-known people who might show up on, you know, you know most admired people in America kind of, kind of lists. Uh, Whitfield is the best-known person of in any field. And, and so, uh, I mean, it, when we think about what a celebrity-driven culture we live in today, I think Whitfield is the first modern celebrity of any kind. Mm. <laughs> and so, I mean, you know, this is not just me saying, well, from a religious history perspective, he's awfully important. No, no, from just an 18th century history perspective, and with the, the advent of this kind of celebrity-driven culture for the good that can come with it in Whitfield's case and the bad that can come with it and everything we see today with Lady Gaga and so forth, I mean— it, it it is a huge development that that means that Whitfield, I think, stands kind of above all the other evangelists that followed in his train because of his notoriety at the time and because Whitfield is the pioneer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really fascinating to see his his impact and his legacy. And you're seeing a resurgence now of pastors really appreciating Whitfield and his sermons and uh, you know his his sort of style of preaching and things, and uh, I think that's a, a good development. But anyways, thank you so much, Dr. Thomas Kidd. Thank you for sharing so much about Whitfield, about history, and about America. We could talk for, for a long time, but we really appreciate your work, and uh, we'll have you on uh, again sometime. Great. Thanks for having me on. Well, I want to thank Dr. Thomas Kidd for that great conversation on history and George Whitfield. I encourage you to read anything he writes, his books, his articles. Uh, he's just a great voice for the church. If you enjoyed this podcast, would you let us know by sending an email to wayhome at erlc.com or writing a review on iTunes? Uh, that just helps us spread the word about the podcast. also want to let you know you can listen to The Way Home on iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Signal. 
You can also find previous episodes on danieldarling.com on the podcast page. Thank you for listening to The Way Home Podcast. The Way Home is recorded and produced by Gary Lancaster. Research is conducted by David Clausen and scheduling is handled by Marie Delph. The Way Home is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. Thank you.